Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And with me today, joining us from San Francisco, is Bill Drygert, co-founder, CEO of Uber Freight. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Santosh. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, uh, we we were supposed to record this in in uh, snowy Chicago, but uh, ultimately uh, we we were able to get to it. And um, you know, to to kick us off here, just like I asked most people, you know, how did you end up, you know, building this great career in the supply chain industry, and you know, specifically in and around freight brokerage? Yeah, so I, I kind of uh, uh, landed through a series of convoluted turns into freight brokerage. So. When I initially got out of high school and went to college, I thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer uh, because I wanted to build, build race cars. So actually, I went to uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta, uh, started getting my mechanical engineering degree, and then actually dropped out of school and spent a couple of years building race cars up in Vermont, of all places. I wasn't making any money at that, so I moved back to Dallas, where I'm from, and then I uh, went back to school at SMU to get a business degree and a uh, computer science degree and started interning at Frito-Lay. And I actually didn't know anything about operations or supply chain. I hadn't taken a single class at that point. Uh, got into Frito-Lay, uh, found that I really loved what I was doing. At Frito-Lay, I was in the middle of the manufacturing planning team. So we designed manufacturing planning systems for all the Frito-Lay facilities. I ended up spending about six and a half years at PepsiCo and a variety of different teams, but focused on all the planning tools uh, behind the scenes for supply chain. And that's when I really found that I, I liked it because it's you're changing things in the real world. It's you know there's a lot of very complicated, interesting problems. Uh, and Pepsi ended up putting me through a master's program at MIT in 2002 and 2003. Uh, so I went back to Pepsi after that for three years. But while I was at MIT. I met Jeff Silver, who was pretty famous in the brokerage sphere uh, as one of the founders and mm-hmm. uh, lead executives at American Backhaulers. And he had just sold American Backhaulers. He was already planning to get back into the business and sold me on the idea of freight brokerage. So I left Pepsi to join Jeff at Coyote when it was only four people and then spent eight years building that up, which was uh, quite a ride. And that's really when I kind of became entrenched in freight brokerage. And, at, at Coyote, I spent a lot of time, well, I managed the development team at the end and spent a lot of time with tech and thinking about these sorts of problems. So, uh, like Uber Freight or building this type of solution was top of mind. So then I went to Amazon for a couple of years and uh, got to really uh, expand my knowledge on final mile delivery, but also launched uh, some truckload products within Amazon. And then I hooked up with Uber and three years ago, and uh, there was an interest in starting Uber Freight. And led me to where I am today. <laughs> That's a g- great, great journey yeah. um, ag- across a lot of notable players uh, in the industry. But now as you, you know, think about, you know, leading Uber Freight and, you know, really being uh, the, the preeminent digital first freight brokerage, you know, h- how are you and, and the leadership team there, you know, 
thinking about standing out and differentiation against all the other digital players that have cropped up over the last three or four years? Yeah, I think that's, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and I, I get asked that a lot and having watched this industry evolve, I think I see a couple of things. So one, there's been a lot of companies that have entered this market. Uh, when we started, we were afraid I went back and counted as many as I could find. And there were 45 companies that I could find that, had started between 2012 and 2016 at that point that had called themselves Uber for Freight. Uh, and even actually after we've launched, there's still been companies that say, we are the Uber for Freight on the, on the yep. website, which <laughs> I find is interesting. <laughs> I, is interesting. Um, so I think the concept and the idea of Uber for Freight uh, is fairly well understood. Uh, I think the execution has not always been consistent in terms of people that have had very different approaches to market. I think the number one thing that is different about Uber Freight is that we're really starting on the foundation of Uber. And Uber is a transportation platform. And Uber's built a ton of technology dealing with geographic data, dealing with moving people and things around. And so when we started, we already had that big head start. I think the other uh, benefit is having sat on the sidelines a little and watched it evolve and, and participated in this industry for so long, uh, but watched that Uber Freight a few startups come and go, uh, we were able to come to market in a much more focused way. Um, typically, when we launched our product, we were the only ones that had 100% visibility and prices across the entire platform. And it was with this firm vision that we want to push the boundaries on transparency uh, and reliability and really build a much more, build the most efficient possible market. And I think that's really been a rallying call since day one. And if you look at a lot of our competitors, other companies in the space, I think typically what you'll see is more pivoting or adjusting and kind of tweaking of the model early on. Now we, you know, we run experiments and we test things and different ideas all the time, but I think our core concept of what we're trying to build has been very, very focused uh, from day one. So I think the biggest differentiator is that we're Uber. The other part of being Uber, of course, is that we're global. So uh, many of the tech forward providers were the only ones that have really put our stake down internationally at this point. And, and for shippers, that's a, that can be a pretty big differentiator um, because a lot of the shippers we talk to, particularly the multinationals, are used to dealing with a small subset of providers and partners when they do ocean or air or other modes. But the truckload, uh, pretty much across the board, every multinational is dealing with thousands or tens of thousands of carriers across the world. And they would love to have at least one company that they can rely on to really push the boundaries on, on tech and uh, give them that kind of centralized visibility. Uh, so that's also, I think, a big advantage. And that also comes into play when we when we go international, we're able to tap into all these existing networks of resources and people and operations experts that we have across Uber, uh, which is, for me, it's like a kid in the candy store just in terms of what we have access to. I, I When I was at Coyote, actually, I spent a lot of time, as an example, building out our own internal mapping tools to map data and make these cool visualizations of uh, like where loads were. Uh, when we started Uber Freight, we were able to just turn all that on. It's all, all the yeah. architecture, <laughs> all the data infrastructure was already there, which is... That's just, awesome. And, and, and you just recently in the last, what, um, couple months or so have expanded into Europe now as well, right? So kind of speaking to kind of that uniform experience here, customers can benefit from, they could be customers here in the U.S. as well as Europe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's uh, 
That was our big launch uh, this year. We uh, launched in the Netherlands. Uh, we now have uh, operations in Germany as well as Poland uh, and can move freight across Europe uh, from those markets. We also launched uh, uh, Canada recently, so we moved, uh, moved freight in Canada as well. So That's great. With, yeah, and uh, it is, you know, it, for me, uh, most of my experience before was in the U.S. I've done some work with, and actually, Coyote had an interesting backstory because uh, we had operations in Europe and then left Europe and they went back to Europe. Um, but it's been quite, I think, educational just learning about the freight markets internationally. And as soon as we launched Uber Freight within Uber, there was always this expectation that we would go international because Uber is an international company. And so uh, we had a lot of inbound interest from managers or strategy and planning leaders across the company that, were, that said, hey, you should go here, you should go there. And, Here's why, and they would give us a 20-page deck, and it was like, wow, <laughs> did all the work for us. And <laughs> as a result, yeah, as a result, I've I've learned a lot about a lot of markets that I never would have even thought of, and you do see a lot of similarities across markets. Now there are, there are definitely key differences, but I think the key, the one of the biggest similarities is that I have not found a market yet where the carrier uh, carriers have a great go of it, or where the driver experience is very positive. I'd yeah. say pretty much across the world, drivers are at the bottom, right, uh, in terms of the interaction. Like shippers always have more leverage and carriers tend to not get the best deal out of it. So, and they also tend to be very fragmented because the barriers to entry and just the, the cost to get a carrier started are very low. They so have a lot of fragmentation. And just like we see in the U.S., there's not a lot of economies of scale of running a carrier other than just getting utilization of the truck. So you see very similar dynamics across the world. And so every time we talk to carriers in a new market, and, and same in Europe and same in, in Canada, uh, they love that you know, we pay fast. They love that prices are visible. The value prop is very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find that. And then on the ship side, it's also it's a very similar approach. I think the, one of the big differences going to Europe with shippers is that um, they're very regional in how they think about their freight. Because in the U.S., it's really a national yeah. In, in Europe, it is. It is still. It's becoming less so, but it still is very country by country, region by region. Yep. Yep. I. I. I've. I've certainly. You know. Experienced that and experienced it not just kind of from the world of supply chain, but also just the way founders think about you know building businesses. They. They tend to think at country level and uh, requires some, you know, deliberate discussion to think about kind of Europe as a whole. <laughs> um, but you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would add one point to that, and that the, the secular trend is that Europe is becoming much more international, and that international freight as a percent is becoming much, uh, much higher. I mean, the EU has only been in existence now for twenty years, so it's, the, the trend is that it's becoming more and more open and more and more international. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, um, shifting gears a little bit, and, and, and you've alluded to this, you know, Uber Freight, you know, being birthed inside of the larger Uber organization, um, a lot of our listeners are familiar with surge pricing, mm-hmm. you know, but out of curiosity, how does that translate from ride hailing to what you're building with your team day in and day out in and around truckload freight or LTL? Yeah, so the concept of surge pricing, I think it's already understood in our market just under a different name because when we go to the market for spot pricing, most of the time what we're going to get back is a, a surge price or last-minute price. Mm-hmm. And when um, when the markets are tight for a holiday or for produce season, 
most shippers would also be familiar with the, the higher prices they have to pay in those markets. So I think the, con- the core concept of surge pricing transfers over pretty well, and it is something that shippers are already familiar with it. But traditionally, it's a very opaque process. They don't have good real-time information if it's Friday night. I mean, when they're going to experience surge pricing, it's like Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, right before a holiday, in the middle of a holiday. But they're going to traditionally they pick up a phone, they call a broker and the or an intermediary, and they're going to give back a price which is like their P95 coverage rate, meaning like 95 percent of the time they should have been covered this rate, but they don't really know because they haven't even called a carrier yet, and they may say that's you know five thousand dollars, and they start calling carriers, they find somebody for thirty two hundred dollars, and they make a great spread, and you know the broker's happy, shipper may or may not be happy, but they really didn't have a lot of options. Yep, I think the the difference will be that, uh, and what we're already saying is that uh, because we have uh, instant access to drivers and because we see where the carriers are and we can predict prices in real time, even on a Friday at 10 p.m., uh, we actually uh, see significant value to shippers in those moments. That's actually where I think the model works uh, it's most acutely uh, better than the old way of doing business. And early on, we started to see this where a Friday night before a hurricane um, where we could source capacity when nobody else could at rates that were significantly lower because we could price discover faster. We reached those you know, 10,000 carriers uh, in a second versus having to call them. Yep. And so as a result, uh, the impact of those surges is lessened for the shipper. So when there is that last-minute crunch, having a real-time market where you're transacting in seconds is when you'll see the biggest benefit uh, in terms of pricing delta. Now, if there are no carriers out there that's everybody's still in that same boat where you're going to have to pay more to get the carrier to drive 200 miles and get out of bed to, to go pick up a load. Um, you know, there's some fundamental dynamics that just, there's, it's the supply and demand in you know, the market as it always has been. But yep. um, I think the advantage of a real time instant market is that you're able to track those prices much more quickly and the reliability is much higher because the other thing that happens in an old market is the market super thin and you're just, Doing it over phone calls, you may never find that one carrier that just happens to be two miles away. Right. That's where when you can look on the computer screen and see, oh, there's a carrier two miles, there's another one 50 miles, and I can you know, text them instantaneously. Right? That's just a more efficient, more efficient market. Yeah, you're, you're, you're effectively, you're, you're able to make a market and reduce all the friction um, out of that kind of price discovery process because you have this latent supply uh, of, of carriers, right. Capacity. Um, that's, that's super interesting, but, you know, going hand in hand with that, you know, there's this frequent discussion we get into and, and this morning, uh, you know, we, we had some folks visiting us and Barry and I were talking about this, but, you know, in the earlier part of the decade, um, you know, freight was brokered at 12 to 15%, but over the last several years, we've seen that, um, you know, erode down. And, you know, in, in your personal opinion, where do you think margins ultimately stabilize uh, in this industry? You know, as, as friction is removed from the system, as you are able to optimize and automate certain processes, you know, where, where should freight be brokered um, if we look at the horizon? Yeah, no, this is a good question. Um, I, we get asked this quite a bit, and I think there's there's also some I think, misunderstanding about how us and others are coming to market in terms of how we price. Um, ultimately, like we 
we want to make the market more efficient. Um, we also, to do that and to, to solve this market, we have to build a sustainable business. Um, and ultimately, margin is a measure of the value that you're adding to that transaction, right? So ultimately, mm-hmm. if there's no margin, then there's, you're not adding any incremental value to the market. Uh, and, you know, we fundamentally believe that like, we are providing a more efficient network. And by doing that, we can source capacity more efficiently. Uh, we can also do it with a lower OPEX in the sense that we don't need somebody in the middle. When, we're, uh, when a shipper puts a load on the platform and that load books in a second, we did that. We were able to do that because nobody had to pick up the phone in the middle or send an email or price a lane out. With that, with a lower OPEX and a more efficient market, then clearly there's, there's a, a, a surplus margin that, that should be generated uh, through that process, right? And then how we you know, allocate that, well, clearly with a more efficient engine, um, you have a lot of options in how you tune that. So I'm not going to speculate on the exact where I think the margin exactly will be uh, long term, but I think that there's still plenty of opportunity to make margin uh, when and when you have the most efficient engine, then you have a lot of flexibility in how you tune that. Yeah. And and who who you give that back to, either on the carrier side or the shipper side. Right? Yep. Yeah. No, that's that's I think spot on. And you know, kind of thinking about one of your your previous comments, you you mentioned how there are differences in geographies. Uh, as you've expanded Uber Freight, but there are also a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of those similarities that I've noticed between the U.S. and, and Europe is kind of this ongoing issue around um, the shortage of qualified drivers, right? Um, you know, we have founders in Europe who tell us a similar story. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we address this issue? Because it's this perennial problem. And would be curious as to how you all think about it, because it does ultimately affect kind of qualified supply and then ultimately price discovery and everything we just went over. Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. Um, when we started Uber Freight, we spent a lot of time with carriers and we built our first products for the carriers uh, because we recognized fairly early on that um, as I mentioned previously, that carriers have a hard run of it, and, and typically they have the hardest, you know, they, they have a very hard job, uh, and it's not easy being a carrier, which is also why there's a driver shortage. Uh, young people aren't graduating at, from high school or college and thinking, I want to be a truck driver. Uh, it's just we see the demographic shifting older. It's, it's, it's the average age of the truck driver is pretty much it's one-to-one aging as, as the the driver's age, uh, meaning that there aren't new drivers entering the market. Yep. One thing we see in our own data is actually our our demographic does skew a little bit younger. So I think we are capturing some of those younger drivers. And I think it's ultimately because uh, our focus has always been how do we make it easier for the drivers and keep them engaged and keep them in the market. And our, one of our missions is to really make life easier for those drivers and make the ecosystem more sustainable for them. The number one way we do that is to keep the trucks moving. And what we're seeing from our drivers is that because Uber Freight is easy, they don't have to make pick up a phone, they can, op- they can operate more efficiently as well. They can find their freight faster, like they can get on the road faster, they can get that last minute load. Uh, so there's efficiencies for them as well, as well as ease of use. Right? So um, the other thing we see is that there's a lot, there's a large population of drivers that don't want to get on the phone for whatever reason and just want to have that certainty of hitting, hitting the button and keep moving. So I think the number one thing.
thing uh, we can do is just keep the drivers moving. Beyond that, we also believe that uh, we can help lower their cost to operate. So we have a product called Freight Plus. It's really a program of uh, discounts. And the mission of that team is, is to materially improve the operating costs of drivers. What can we do as Uber because we have access to uh, better discounts, because we have the leverage of being Uber uh, through fuel discounts or tire discounts or maintenance discounts or insurance discounts? What can we do to help their operating costs? Um, that also was a big motivation for us for PowerLoop, which is our uh, our shared pool of assets, our, our trailers. It's, uh, it's our uh, universal trailer pool program. Yep. Uh, because what that allows is for drivers that traditionally could not participate or small carriers that could not participate in drop trailer freight, all of a sudden they have access to drop trailer freight, which means they have more opportunities, they're earning more. It's also typically more local haul, which for an, a young new driver is just getting the industry. The local haul business is an easier, more manageable business. Drivers prefer to stay in region and sleep on their own bed at night. Yep. You know, there's drivers of all different motivations. There are, there are definitely those drivers who just want to go out on the road and, and haul. But uh, as a majority, we see uh, many drivers that just want that local freight, which PowerLoop gives them access to that too. Because traditionally, that freight may have only been available to large asset owning carriers who have their own recruiting challenges and their own you know, driver retention challenges. But as an ecosystem, if I'm an owner operator and I'm, say, 22 years old, maybe you know, fresh out of the military, I, I probably don't have a lot of options to find good freight. And, and through PowerLoop, through Uber Freight, all of a sudden I have options that I didn't have before, which will keep me in the market versus maybe I'm just previously, I was just going on the DAT or, or uh, one of the load boards and picking up the phone and calling, and it was just a hard time for me to get good freight. All of a sudden I have this additional option, which yeah. I think keeps them in the market. So, so yeah, I think the summarize the best thing we can do is just to make the market easier for drivers and to keep them engaged uh, to make it sustainable and it looks like a lot of what you're you're offering is kind of taking this long tail that's fragmented and because technology Mm -hmm. is amazing uh but you know really what the one thing that technology facilitates in, in our industry is kind of uh, proving to be this aggregation layer, if you would, and allowing these smaller carriers to have some of this sophistication around assets, payment flow, mm-hmm. access to blue chip shippers, right? Um, and that ultimately kind of compounds <laughs> within the Uber Freight ecosystem. Yeah, no, I was going to say the, the one other thing I'll, I'll add to that is that it's also like that it is a community and we also want to give that community a voice and engage with them on, on that level, meaning that what, one of the things that we launched last year was our facility ratings. And one of the first things we learned out of that is that it was, it was almost all like drivers talking to other drivers and sharing information and tips for other drivers. It was less like the feedback. If you read through the feedback on the facilities, it's less directed towards the facility, more towards other drivers, like what the watch outs are, what a park. Um, so I think there is a lot of like, Drivers, there is a there's a community of drivers uh, that is engaged, and so one of the things we we're very focused on is how do we empower that community of drivers. Yeah, yeah. So you know, kind of stepping back from from Uber Freight for for a bit, um, you know, you've you've had this great career, uh, being able to uh, kind of see the the growth of a lot of uh, prominent organizations in and around trucking and and freight brokerage. 
Um, and I'd, I'd be curious your opinion, how uh, you kind of think about this, but over the last four to five years and, you know, around the time frame that the Dynamo got founded and, and we got started, we've seen a lot more attention and effort in building technology for just the supply chain broadly. Um, we're seeing incumbents now, you know, being forced to move. Um, they're making commitments around, you know, technology spend or certain type of recruiting efforts or M&A. But, you know, I'd, I'd be curious in, in your perspective, what are these incumbents getting right um, as they respond to, you know, this rush of technology hitting the sector? Yeah, uh, there are certainly a lot of very smart and, and tech savvy people uh, that work at, at the incumbents. And I think if you look across uh, the incumbents, there's some that are doing, I'd say, a very good job of being tech forward and thoughtful and investing in tech and trying to get ahead uh, of the narrative. I think the challenge that most incumbents have now is that there's a little bit of catch up. And so when I listen to the incumbents talk about technology, a lot of times they talk about it in the abstract. They'll say, they'll say things like, we're you know, investing 200 million in tech or 300 million or 100 million without really articulating a clear, concise vision in terms of how they're going to differentiate the tech or what the product focus will be. And I think that comes from a, a position of like starting at a deficit and having to get to square, you know, get to baseline and then, then build on top of that. So I think that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. I think some, um, you know, I, I will give you know, credit where credit due is due, but there's definitely certain companies that I think have stayed ahead of it. Um, you know, I, I, of course, you know, still have a lot of uh, friends back at Coyote. And I think they, like when we built that, it was a very tech forward company. Um, and I think that they had, you know, at the time, were, were fairly tech forward in what they were building out. Um, if I look um, you know, across the ecosystem, I think you know, J.B. Hunt is an example of another one that I think has done a pretty good job of uh, getting ahead of being yep. thoughtful and yeah, pivoting their biz- business model uh, early on and t- recognizing that this, this is the way the market is moving. Um, so I think there's definitely... Uh, companies out there that have uh, taken the, like, have seen the signs that have, have made the uh, adjustment. I think there's the challenge with any of those companies, though, is always going to be that um, they always have this overhang of, of, they've got to manage their internal operations and build technology that continues to refine their internal operations, and that will always be a big, uh, big resource, suck, as well as kind of tuning legacy systems, mm-hmm. because there is a momentum and overhang uh, that they're going to have to work through with just the legacy systems. And those legacy systems are typically tailored to very precise SOPs and processes that have been developed over many years. Um, you have, uh, you know, a lot of hardening uh, that happens over decades with processes uh, that get built around the capabilities of the systems and systems that then get built around the capabilities of the processes. Yep. There's a lot of organizational debt. <laughs> yes. So like the, another just huge advantage we've had is that we were able to come in with a clean sheet and start from zero and just you know, point in one direction and go. Um, and so that, that's where I've seen them struggle. And I, I think that you know, what, I, what I've seen, where I've seen companies not address this well is when they just talk about technology as an abstract thing uh, without being very precise with how they're going to uh, leverage tech to actually improve services for shippers and uh, carriers. And my last point on that is I think that most, uh, a 
lot of legacy companies um, really do still focus within the four walls on their building tech and don't really they don't really have that consumer or external mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is more of a history of just how the tech has evolved in the space and that most companies have not had that access to carriers or been thoughtful about, well, what can I do? How can I really change the experience for the carriers? Uh, because they just haven't had the tools to do that or the access to do that. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, kind of a, a lot of what you're saying goes hand in hand uh, with, with leadership styles, leadership practices, and, you know, I'd be remiss and would be berated by uh, our, our founders if I didn't, you know, ask you for, for some of your, kind of your, your leadership insights here. But, you know, you've, you've navigated Uber Freight through a you know, period of hyperscale. And I'd be curious in, in such an organization, what is like a must-have skill that a leader must have to succeed, in, in your opinion? Yes. So I will... Uh... So the number one skill is hiring good people. But to be able to hire good people, I think as a leader, then you also have to have a high level of self-awareness and introspection because you've got to be able to recognize your faults, take feedback, realize where you need to shore up uh, your own capabilities and build a bench that is balanced uh, for the organization. But absolutely bringing the right people in uh, I think is the number one skill uh, of any leader because you can't scale rapidly if you can't trust your people and if you can't empower them to let them run. If you don't have good people, it'll just slow you down and stretch you thin um, and you won't be able to dedicate the time you need to on the P0s. You'll be just chasing down challenges that your uh, leaders aren't solving. Yeah. And, you know, out of curiosity, how do you, you know, get the right people in place. It sounds like, you know, have high self-awareness, a, a high EQ, uh, as much as a high IQ. Um, but, you know, given, you know, you are a large organization, you're scaling geographically, you know, how, how do you hold people kind of accountable towards certain goals or towards certain objectives from, from your vantage point? Cause I know that's something you know, startup founders and, and their teams oftentimes are constantly struggling with and trying to get better at. Yeah, there's a for hyperscaling, I think the infrastructure is key. So you always have to make sure you've got the right metrics in place and the right data, the right signals to be able to hold your leadership team accountable. And this is really about controlling blind spots and always kind of auditing your own visibility. Like, what do you not know? What way you're not giving good signals? Where do you have, where do you feel? There might be a soft spot, making sure that you've got the right data and signals. And then related to that, having the right structure of kind of meetings and engagements and conversations with your team to make sure that you've got the right period of checkouts, right? Is it monthly, is it weekly, is it, is it uh, quarterly? Um, and then as long as you've got the right management team in place and they're giving you the right signals and you, you're getting the right conversations with them, uh, then you can drive the right level of accountability. Yeah. And, you know, how, how do you think about growth and, and growing them and helping them achieve, you know, their their dreams or, or goals in, in their career? Because as a leader, that's also very important. Yeah, so I think number one, setting clear, clear objectives and clear deliverables and then providing a high degree of autonomy and empowerment for the team so that they have and then you know, proving that you trust them to execute. Uh, and then mm-hmm. once you got that trust, I think it's really having an open conversation, um, 
making sure that you're getting ahead of the conversation. So for growth and development, um, you know, I mean, I think we've, you know, I haven't always gotten this, this, this perfectly right. We've actually made some changes recently uh, over the last year to our process just to drive a lot more visibility um, and so that we're having conversations early. Uh, because I think a lot of it is around just setting clear expectations and then having open conversations across the organization. Because uh, for any leader's growth, it's not it's not one person; it's a whole community, right? It's it's really all their peers and all their leaders and all their uh, directs uh, that should have that will help them grow and help develop them and make sure that we have the right checks and balances in place. So one of the things that we do is we start our promo conversations at the very early in terms of next steps. Um, and we engage uh, like one-on-one and we develop a, like a promo story together and then uh, pull in leaders along the way to get feedback and touch points, make sure there's no surprises. Uh, because I think when it's not an effective process is when somebody, when there aren't clear expectations and maybe there's a lack of self-awareness or not alignment in terms of leadership uh, and report in terms of uh, what the expectations are. But it's not just that, but also alignment of expectations across the organization. So. Uh, because the worst case is when you think that somebody's ready for promo, they're doing a great job, they're really ready for the next step of that new position, uh, and then you talk to a peer who says, absolutely not, no way, uh, here because of X, Y, Z. Those conversations need to happen early, uh, and so having that early uh, engagement, I think, is critical. Um, but in terms of like letting people run, it's always like stretching and providing uh, autonomy and empowerment. And again, this is, I think, one of the key skills of hyperscaling is that the only way you can grow quickly if you trust every level yeah. of your leadership and yeah. let them run. That's a good point. So, you know, here, you know, as, as we wrap up, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, you know, talking about the industry, what you're building at Uber Freight, uh, some of your, your leadership principles. But, you know, we've, we've seen Uber Freight make, uh, you know, a, a huge impact on the industry as we see it today. But I'd be curious in your perspective, you know, where does it fit into the puzzle as we look ahead over the next 7, 10, 20 years and think about the future of supply chain? Yeah, um, I think as we think about the next 10, 20 years, uh, our vision has always been how do you make freight like a utility? Like fundamentally, I believe freight should be easy. It should be you flip a switch and, and you get what you need delivered. And when we started Uber Freight, we were actually very close to the, the ATG team here uh, who's developing our autonomy solutions. And you know, early on, one of the like, thought exercises was just, well, okay, in the future, when it's all, if it's, if it's AVs and you, you need to deliver something, you would just probably dispatch the closest to AV. You know, you, you, but as soon as the doors closed on the load, the closest AV shuttle would be dispatched to pick up the trailer and be on the way. There would be no price negotiation. You wouldn't call anybody. You would expect that whole process to be automated. Um, so mm-hmm. before that, though, like how do we get to that state in our current environment? And that's, that's really one of the seeds of the thought of, of Uber Freight. But it should be seamless in that at every step along the way, you should have perfect access to information. Meaning as a shipper, uh, whenever I'm making any decision around moving stuff around or reconfiguring my supply chain, I should be able to get real-time rates, and I should be able to get real-time commitments so that by the time I'm you know, putting that new production line in and in Topeka, that I've already got committed rates and a committed contract, and I know like who's going to show up uh, and who's going to take that, that freight, uh, versus having to manually manage all these procurement events. Uh, there's a huge amount of overhead just in 
uh, procurement management in terms of going through all these complicated RFPs and events and coming up with these annual contracts, which just turn over. There's a huge amount of overhead and waste involved in exception management because we lack visibility, because we lack responsiveness, because we can't quickly recover from incidents when a driver doesn't show up. So I think by providing you know, perfect transparency and perfect reliability, um, or as close to perfect as, as possible, both of those uh, shifts will change how we operate in the network and will move us closer and closer to that vision of a, of a true utility where it's just, I know that if I, if I need a truck, I'm going to get a rate. That rate is a fair market rate. Um, it's transparent to me, and I know when that truck is going to show up, and I can track it, and I have visibility, and I know with a high degree of certainty whether or not it's going to show up. And to me, a lot of this gets back to the, like, what is the Uber experience today? Because for with an Uber, I had that experience today on the ride side. As a, if I'm a rider in San Francisco, and I need to get around, and I used an Uber this morning because I had to drop my car off, uh, I pulled out my phone. I saw that it was two minutes away, so I, I knew you know exactly when it would show up. Uh, I didn't need to plan ahead. I could just execute within a two-minute window when I needed to go. I hit the button. I knew the exact price. I knew an estimated time of when I would get to the uh, destination, all within seconds. Right? I didn't need to make any calls or send any emails or send any faxes. And that experience, it you know, it doesn't. It never existed in, in freight. And as that experience becomes more common in freight, where I'm able to get a price instantaneously, I'm able to see when the truck might get booked to where it's going to show up, when it'll arrive, and I can do all that with a high degree of trust, uh, expect that that will shift us to this more, uh, you know, utility-like mentality where I just, I know that my freight is reliable, and so I don't have to worry about it. And so a lot of the friction and the overhead involved in making freight work today then right, becomes easier. Yeah. Uh, so I think that. Yeah, that's a big piece. Um, and then building on that, like within 10 to 20 years, I do I do think we'll start to see you know, ABs uh, interspersed in the network, um, <laughs> which will also change the dynamic. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, because <laughs> I think what, yeah, well, yeah. And there's a lot of I, I think a lot of interesting ideas in how that evolve, will evolve. But the idea that like you know we'll see it on the highways and that there will be a high degree of kind of local uh, calls that are still handled manually. I think that's that's a reasonable uh, expectation within the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, Hey Bill, uh, it's, it's been a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate you joining us here and, uh, look forward to, uh, hearing from our listeners on what they think about our conversation. Absolutely. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.